Well, tonight, as John kind of alluded to before, we're discussing another of those Reformation themes. Uh, Tonight's one is sola gratia, or if you don't speak Latin like I don't, uh, in plain English, it's grace alone. We're saved by God's grace alone. Now, I wonder if you've uh, discovered that the word grace has many different meanings, Um, meanings in common English, and some of them are better understood than others. For example, listen to this sentence and see how many times you can pick out the word grace in this sentence. Grace, would you grace us with your presence by gracefully moving over this way and say grace because we're thankful to God for his grace for us? Did did you pick it? How many were there? Five. Five. Yeah, I got five as well, so at least we're on the same page. Um, People use grace as a girl's name, a really lovely name. Um, Maybe giving someone your time. Would you grace us with your presence? It's used as a nice way to move, something like a ballerina might do or something like that. And it's used as a prayer, thanks to Owen who enlightened us with that earlier on, sealing my thunder, uh, something that we might say before we eat a meal. But then there's probably the least understood of them all. Uh, God's grace. What is God's grace? Well, we have this God's grace and grace alone tonight. What does it actually mean? And the essence of it is that our salvation, as God's people, is a free gift from him. Our salvation is a free gift from God. It's not based on our qualifications. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our cuteness or anything like that. It's his extravagant free gift to us, not something that we've earned. If we turn to the Bible and look at the biblical word for grace in the New Testament, it's charis and refers to God's unmerited favour. God's unmerited favour. And that's the the nice little definition I'll be using tonight for what grace is all about. God's unmerited favour. What can we learn from this? Well, firstly, it comes from God. God's unmerited favour, it's from him. Secondly, we have the word unmerited. Unmerited, it's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unwarranted. It's something he didn't need to do and yet has done anyway for us. And then thirdly, favour. It's something that's good. We, we generally like it when people have favour with us or when they're happy with us. Now, we might get a little annoyed if God practised something akin to God's unmerited hatred or God's unmerited disfavour or God's unmerited unkindness. But grace is quite the opposite. God's unmerited favour. Something that we should all be very happy about. Something we should all be very excited about. And something that's worth finding out about. It's a good thing. Now, last week, uh, John was talking about uh, the Scripture alone and talked a bit about Martin Luther, one of the, the fathers of the Reformation. And so I've grabbed a few things that Martin Luther has said about grace as well, which I think will be helpful for us. A couple of quotes there up for you. The first one says that grace signifies that favour with which God receives us, forgiving our sins and justifying us freely through Christ. And then he says, on man's part, Nothing precedes grace but rebellion against grace. Really outlines it for us that this this gift of God is is a gift and not something that we earn. It's a free gift. I think grace is probably the most distinctive doctrine about Christianity. The most distinctive thing about it overall. Think about it for a moment. It sounds a bit crazy that a God would come down and die for a whole lot of people that were in rebellion against him and hated him and didn't want to live his ways so that he could have a relationship with him. 
all these people willfully rebelling, so distinctive, so unique. And I think as we delve through the passage tonight and look into it, hopefully there will be three main points that will come across pretty clearly. The first one being that grace is always how God's related to people. It's how he does it now, it's how he'll do it in the future, and it's how he's always related to people. Secondly, we'll look and find that God's grace means we can't work our way into heaven as if it was a reward for our good doings. And finally, what we'll see is God's grace is something which actually humbles us. So firstly, grace is always how God's related to people. Grace is always how God is related to people. Now some people try and make a big contrast between the so-called God of the Old Testament and the so-called God of the New Testament. They might say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was mean, nasty, and cruel. And he treated people pretty unkindly. And they might say, well, the God of the New Testament is all nice and lovey-dovey, and anything goes with that sort of God, the one you sort of want to know. Richard Dawkins, the renowned atheist and author of The God Delusion, puts it this way in his book. He says that God, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Kind of shows where he's coming from. But wait for it. He says he's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, the list goes on and on, and ends in capriciously malevolent bully. Now, not only does it illustrate the fool, according to the Bible's definition of a fool, uh, could use a thesaurus really well, but it illustrates that the God of the Old Testament, in some people's minds, is this evil guy, the nasty pasty, and has none of the characteristics of what we talk about in a God of grace, a loving God of grace. But what I'd like to suggest is that this God of the Old Testament is exactly and precisely the same God of the New Testament. God's always related to people through grace. From distant history, present time, and in the future, grace is the mode by which God will relate to people, has related to people. It's one of those characteristics which is core to his character. God's a God of grace. He's always been a God of grace and will always be a God of grace. Earlier on, we had read to us a passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7, uh, 7 to 14, and it was talking about God's special relationship, how he related to his people, Israel. Uh, in that passage, it tells us that it wasn't based on the size of the nation of Israel. In the passage, it specifically says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And it wasn't based on their incredible love and faithfulness to God. If you've read the Old Testament, you'll see them falling over and failing again and again and again to keep any of God's laws. They're forsaking God for idols, for possessions, for false gods. And last week in our growth group, we were reading from Malachi, and the message that the priests were basically saying is, it's so weary to serve God, the weariness of it all. Why do we do it? And yet God loves them like a bride, despite of all their unfaithfulness. One of the prophets of the Old Testament, Hosea, illustrates this really well. And God told this prophet Hosea to go ahead and marry someone with a less than stellar reputation. The sort of sleeping around type, the type that you want to keep clear of. Uh, all Christian parents would want to keep their sons clear of. And don't go near this one. And Hosea does. 
And after a time, and after a few kids, some of them with suspect fathers, this wife runs off. Runs off and continues the life that she was living previously. And God instructs Hosea to go out and find this woman and buy her. She's being sold like a slave at an auction. Buy her and bring her back into his family, into his household, and be her husband again, even after she's run away. Now, it's a heartbreaking and a tragic story, and yet so much more amplified when we realise the true ramifications of it. It's a bit of a parable between God and his people. They are all off serving other gods, living their own way. God comes in and, and chooses them, calls them. And for a while, they, they kind of serve him. Maybe they do a few things on the side, living for idols. Uh, after a while, they get sick of that, turn their back on him, run off their own way, live exactly like they'd want to do. And what does God do? Does he cast them off forever? No. He buys them back to himself again and again and again. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And eventually, he pays the ultimate price, the biggest price, he sends his son. He sends Jesus. Jesus takes our place. We see bold grace in the life of Hosea, one of God's prophets. But we see even bolder grace, even more extravagant grace, even more amazing grace in what God's done through his son. So we see God acting in the nation of Israel. And we see grace when they didn't deserve it. They were meant to be God's example, God's people that were to point people towards God. We, we even see God calling all of their leaders from very shady circumstances, very shady backgrounds. If we were on a jury, we'd probably convict them of all sorts of things and want them to spend a bit of time in jail. We have Moses, for example, who went off and murdered an Egyptian who was treating uh, some of his fellow Israelites a bit harshly. We have King David who has an affair and then to cover up the affair uh, has the cu- husband uh, put in the front lines of battle and, and retreated upon so he'll get killed. Uh, a little plan that he'd orchestrated there. We have Abraham who lied about his, who his wife was and didn't mention it at all when Pharaoh took her for himself. That can't have too many different meanings. We have Jacob who stole his brother's birthright with trickery and deception. And the list goes on and on and on. We see a bunch of people that don't deserve God's favour at all. They don't deserve God's love at all. They were rebels, they were sinners, and yet God... This God, this God of the Old Testament, gives grace, as does the God of the New Testament, the same one. So he does it back then, but he does it now today. And we can be thankful that grace is always how God's related to people. And that brings us to the second point, which is God's grace means that we can't work our way into heaven. God's grace means that we can't work our way into heaven. One of the most universal aspect of religions around the world is this concept of salvation is by works. Salvation is by something that we do. We need to please the gods by some means, whatever it may be. It might be uh, elms, it might be prayers, it might be chants, it might be pilgrimages, it might be niceness. Whatever it is, it's all about what we do. I have to do this, I have to do this. I, 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 me, me, me. And I guess we can kind of comprehend pretty easily a workspace system. We earn something. When we go off to work and we come to payday, 
when, our, when we have money deposited into our bank account or when we get paid, we don't think, wow, I wasn't expecting that at all. Well, we were expecting it, weren't we? We work for it, we earn it, and we get paid. If we had a different circumstance where we got an annual bonus, some companies do this sort of thing, they'll give you an annual bonus. You're kind of expecting it. Something's coming up, oh, this will be good. An annual bonus, you get your annual bonus and you're happy. You might say, oh, yeah, I earned that. I tried really hard. But what if you were doing something less than stellar at work? What if you were actually plotting to overthrow your boss? You wanted his position, and at the end of the year, the boss comes up to you and says, like, I know what's been going on. You've been plotting to overthrow me. I've seen all the emails. I've seen all that. But I'm giving you bonus anyway. Would you deserve that bonus? No, of course not. And yet he's done it anyway. That's an example of grace. Now, I think this idea of working our way into heaven or this workspace doctrine has, has two main problems with it. And the first problem is it can lead to despondency. Think about it. If getting to heaven was based on what you've done, there's this thing of, have I ever done enough? I don't have any assurance. Am I over the line? Am I good enough for God? Am I good enough for heaven? And it has this other problem as well, a problem of legalism, where we think we're by following some sort of set of rules, we can earn our way into heaven or onto God's good side. We just need to follow the rules. Grace alone, salvation by grace alone, solves both these problems, despondency and legalism. It gives us hope and doesn't bring us into bondage like both of these things do. Bondancy. The Bible makes it clear our salvation isn't based on our works, but it's based on Jesus' works. Not on what we've done, but what he's done. So we don't need to keep on asking, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I got over the line? The answer is no. You haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I never could do enough. The question that we need to ask, though, is has Jesus done enough? Has Jesus done enough? Of course he has. He came and died for you and I. He lived a perfect life. He came and died for you and I. Precisely because we haven't done enough and we could never do enough and we never will do enough. Jesus has done that for us. Look for a moment at our passage from Ephesians 2. Let's see what that tells us. Starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Had the Ephesian Christians done enough to earn their salvation? No. Have we done enough to earn our salvation? No. They hadn't, we haven't, and no one ever will. And just in case it isn't clear enough from this passage, Paul makes it really clear right through the book of Romans. Romans 3.23, for example, comes to mind where it tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all fall short and none of us deserve to go to heaven on our own merits. 
None of us. Not one. But then we see what God's done. So going back to our passage and starting picking it up from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace. It's by grace you have been saved. So we need not despair. We need not despair, have we done enough? Our salvation isn't based on our poor efforts or good works. It's based on Jesus' perfect work, his perfect work for us. But then we had this second problem, the problem of legalism. Uh, Can we follow this set of rules? Can we be penitent and do all these good works and work our way into heaven somehow? You might have heard people say at a funeral, for example, well, that person was a good person. They'll be looking down on us from heaven. Or something like affirming the idea that we can all work our way to heaven without any reference to Jesus whatsoever. The Roman Catholic Church affirms works as part of their salvation. The Second Vatican Council says that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Faith, well, that's a good thing. Baptism and observance of all the commandments. Working your way there. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, the Catholic Council of Trent, where it talks of, as means of regaining grace and justice, penance was at all times necessary for those who had defiled their souls with any mortal sin. Now, this word penance, it's an interesting one. And essentially, it means somehow we have to earn forgiveness. We have to do something. It might be a a work of charity, a gift. It might be uh, times people used to whip themselves and things to think, well, if I put myself under some sort of stress, do something, I'll I'll earn God's forgiveness and his favour somehow. In our Bible, we're told rather that we ought to repent, turn away from sin, rather than doing this penance, trying to, to earn that forgiveness somehow. Now, in part, this came about as a mistranslation. Uh, the early Catholic Church used a translation of the Bible. It was in Latin. It was called the Vulgate. And pretty well, most of the parts where we now have the word repent in our modern New Testament, it said, do penance. Uh, now, our modern New Testaments were translated directly from the Greek texts, rather than this one. And so we don't have that we, we don't have that mistranslation there anymore. So we can understand what the original meaning was. But the whole idea of working for our salvation is something that, that essentially downplays and cheapens what God's done for us through Christ. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear again. Galatians uh, chapter 2.29, Paul tells us, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be obtained through the law... Christ died for nothing. Do you get that? If, if righteousness could be gained through the law, through observing the law, through works essentially, Christ died for nothing. Paul's essentially saying that Jesus' death would be a complete waste of time if we could work our way into heaven, if we could earn our way into heaven from our good works. Why did Jesus die in the first place? And yet he did. Now, our passage in Ephesians talked a lot about good works as well, particularly towards the end. At the start, it talked about bad works. It talked about what we used to be like, how we used to live. And at the end, it talks about our good works. It doesn't tell us that those works are what saves us, though. It actually says quite the opposite. Have a look reading from verse 8. 
For it's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So why then should we do good things? Is this a license to say, ah, I'm saved by grace, I can live however I want, I can dishonor God, I can just live my own way. Why do we do God thing, uh, good things? Not to earn salvation, not to try and pay God back out of some guilt for what he had to put Jesus through to save us. Verse 9 and 10 tell us exactly what these good works are for. They're a consequence of living in Christ. They're a consequence of being transformed by Christ. They're a consequence of, of being saved, being a Christian, living for Christ. To try and put way around and, and say that these good works are what saves us and, and that makes us a Christian, it's like putting the, the cart before the horse or the, the trailer before the ute. It, it doesn't work that way. It's the other way around. Because we're a Christian, because we're saved, because Jesus has saved us, he enables us to do these good things. He doesn't cause us to do these good things to save us, to justify us before God. Because we're transformed by God, rather than trying to buy salvation somehow, is why we live like God wants us to do. So grace reminds us that we can't work our way into heaven. And finally, we can learn that God's grace is something that should humble us. God's grace should humble us. Verse 9 of our passage makes a really interesting comment related to pride and humility and all things related to that. I'll read from verse 8 to put it into a bit of context. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. Boasting is something we do out of pride. When we've done something and we're happy with it, we want to tell people about it, we're proud about it, we boast about it. But one thing grace does is it means we can't trust in ourselves We can't trust in our abilities, our work, our job, our cuteness or anything like that for our salvation. The only thing we can trust in is God alone. Now that kind of, I can't see any better motivation to remove pride from our lives. We, We kind of think, oh, why am I a Christian? Why am I going to heaven? It's not because I'll follow these rules. It's not because I've done this pilgrimage or penance or prayed or any of these things. It's because of what God's done through Christ. And this is a theme that's echoed right throughout the Bible again and again and again. Proverbs 3.34, for example, and this is a verse that's quoted both in 1 Peter and in the book of James, it tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Jesus illustrates this whole concept really well in Luke 18 with the parable between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read it for you because it just illustrates this whole concept of grace well. Uh, Luke 18, starting at verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you, though I'm not like other men. 
robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a great illustration of the concept there. We have this man that comes into God's presence and thinks he's justified by what he's done. I fast twice a week. I give money. I do this. I do this. I do this. God, you should accept me. And then we have the other that realizes he's not worthy of God. He's not worthy of heaven. He asks for God's mercy. And that's the one that God accepts. Who of us could actually come before God and say, God, you should accept me because I'm a good person? Not one. Not one. When we see how holy God is and how unholy we are, we see such a massive gulf, we can't approach God in pride and think that we can earn our way into heaven. And yet this is what grace is all about. This is what salvation is all about. Unearned, unmerited, and something that humbles us. When we realize such, such salvation that we require and such salvation that we could never earn ourselves, we realize that rather than being proud of it, we should be humble and thankful. So salvation is not something of ourselves. It's all of Jesus because God's grace humbles us. But then, how does this affect us? Well, grace is something that we can actually practice too. I think a good dose of grace does wonders for creating a happy marriage, love and forgiveness between husband and wife and within the family. A good dose of grace does wonders for restoring broken relationships between people. A good dose of grace makes for a happy family, a good workplace. But most importantly, a good dose of grace is exactly what we need from God and exactly what we can receive from God. Do we all receive this good dose of grace? In a general sense, we do. In a general sense, we do. We have air to breathe, we have water to drink, we have food to eat and all sorts of other good things in life. God's general grace to everyone. We get favour that we don't deserve. But in a special sense, no, we don't all receive this special grace. There's a grace from God that we can receive that far outweighs all these other things. The air to breathe, the water to drink, the food to eat, all those things are good. But this grace, like all the others, is something that can't be bought, something that can't be earned, but something that we need. Something that we need desperately. Something that we need from God. You see, if we want to gain access to God's perfect heaven, we can't do it by ourselves. We're far too imperfect to gain access into God's perfect heaven. And God's well within his rights to, uh, to, to say, no, you can't gain access to heaven, you're imperfect. Uh, think about the mother who's just uh, mopped the floors and you want to walk in in your, your dirty boots all over them. Uh, she'll say, take them off, be very unhappy. God won't let imperfection into heaven. But it's amazing what he's done in grace. He's enabled a way for us to gain access into heaven. 
through Jesus. Jesus is substitute for us. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live. He died. He died the death of, the death of a rebel, the death that we all deserve to die. And he died it in our place. He's the only way we can approach God. He's the only way that we can get into a perfect heaven. The good news is that there is a way. There is a way for man to get into heaven. The bad news is it's available to both you and I. The sad news is not everyone's accepted that way, that gift from God. It's not about deserving. None of us will ever deserve it. None of us will ever work hard enough to deserve it. None of us will ever be able to pay God back. You deserve it just as much as I do. Not at all. And yet, that's how extravagant God's gift of grace is. So I guess one day when we meet our maker, whether it be because we die or whether it be because he returns, what basis will we meet him? And what basis will we expect to be welcomed into his perfect heaven? Is it on what we've done? We tell God, well, I've done more good than bad. I've done more good than that person over there. Not very likely. Your sin and my sin was so bad that Jesus had to die in our place. Your sin and my sin was so bad that Jesus had to die in our place. That's pretty bad. We can only ever approach God having accepted his grace by faith. Have you accepted it? Have you accepted God's unmerited, unearned, priceless gift to you in Jesus? If you haven't, maybe tonight's the night. To be free from worry, to be free from doubt, to be free from vain attempts to try and meet some sort of a a heavenly KPI, a key performance indicator of trying to work your way in. If that's you tonight, maybe have a chat to me or have a chat to John or one of the pastors or elders or someone that you know is a Christian, someone who trusts in Jesus. For those of you that have accepted God's grace, how's it changing you? How's it changing you? Remember, we saw at the start the the bad works to the the good works that we do because God's prepared them by his grace for us to do. You've accepted the biggest gift in the universe, a free pardon from the creator of the universe, not because you earned it, but because he loves you. Are you cherishing the gift? Are you amazed by the gift? Are you telling others of the gift? Are you telling others of the giver? Because what an amazing gift it is. Let's pray. God, your grace is truly amazing. Now, Father, thank you for this gift to us. Lord, I never earned it. No one else here ever earned it. And yet you've given it freely. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for your grace. Thank you this is is how you relate to us. Thank you that you bring us life through Christ. We pray, Lord, that we may ever remain close to you and be amazed by your grace and ever thankful for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.